Spooky season. Precisely. Um, Welcome back to Arts Interrupted. This is Avery Friedman. And I'm Michael Watkins. And we're recording this on All Hallows Eve. I'm just assuming that All Hallows Eve is the night before Halloween, just like Christmas Eve and stuff. All Christmas Eve? This makes sense, right? That this would be All Hallows Eve right now. Yeah, yeah, it does. (laughs) It's also Mischief Night. Mischief Night? What is that? What? Mischief oh my God, night? I think it's a huge deal that I don't know what this is. <laughs> Everyone in this room is shook. You okay. never went out on mischief night? What is mischief night? You Did go out the night before Ohio? Halloween and you just like te- you throw toilet paper on people's trees. TPO? Maybe egg their house. Yeah, you just like mischief night. mess around at night. I love pranks. It's fun. Oh my God. Well, I don't think you guys had a thing called the pumpkin roll in your town. We did not. Can I give a really quick synopsis? Yes. For since the 70s in my small ass town in Trigun Falls, Ohio, shout out. Juniors and seniors at my high school, we have like 150 kids per grade, so it's very small. And we, leading up to Halloween, we steal pumpkins from people's porches and we get like thousands of pumpkins. Actually, I think like 1,000. Thousands <laughs> might be an exaggeration. A we, get, we get definitely, hunt, like we get a U-Haul full of pumpkins and we steal them from people's porches. Everybody knows it's a thing. Some people write like, I want to roll on their pumpkins to be taken to the pumpkin roll. And then one night, someone, some senior football player, haha, <laughs> Ohio Town, texts, let's roll. And all juniors and seniors go. There's this huge hill in my town. And we go and smash the pumpkins down this concrete road hill and sled down the hill at midnight. Because the road gets all like mushy and slimy. It, yes, right? it gets greased with like pumpkin guts. And you smash them. People ride down and like baby pools there's videos with thousands of views of this on youtube it's one of the craziest experiences of my life and it's so fun and we all go to school the next morning with like pumpkin guts all over ourselves are there any injuries yeah there's yeah my year there was an ambulance <laughs> visit and nine arrests Jeez. for oh underage drinking yeah wow. so anyway that's my version of mischief night crazy. i'm pretty <laughs> pretty upset i didn't know about that i might have to go participate in some pranks yeah. after this uh, so this episode is going to be all about spook, but before we do that, we're going to give you our traditional weekly roundup. I will try to be brisk with it because we know you're all excited to get spooked. <laughs> the Simpsons famous slash infamous character Apu is a controversial Indian American on the show, uh, is rumored to possibly be written off the show after a TV documentary called The Problem with Apu aired uh, about a year ago. Yeah, the, the film's writer, the documentary's writer named Hari Kondabolu told BBC that Apu was the only Indian we had on TV at all. So I was happy for any represent- representation as a kid. But as he grew older, uh, Kondabolu became more critical of Apu saying that he's funny, but that doesn't mean that this representation is accurate or right or righteous. Uh, So basically, people are kind of getting tired of the racist representation of Indian Americans in the show. And while The Simpsons show has not confirmed that the character will be written off, it seems that might be likely. Yeah, and then in other screen arts-related news, Beautiful Boy, starring Steve Carell, and everybody's love, Timothy Chalamet, is coming to the Michigan Theater. It's been out in some larger cities than Ann Arbor, but it's coming to the Michigan Theater this Thursday night at 9.35 and Friday, November 2nd at noon. And yeah, I've heard kind of mixed reviews about it. Really? It's, yeah, it has a ton of hype because obviously Steve Carell and Timothy and it's a, 
I supposedly very moving about Timothée Chalamet's character has a big addiction problem and it's him and his father's mm-hmm. journey through that. But yeah, I've heard that it's pretty good. And I heard that also it was more of like Steve Carell's it was in the spotlight as opposed to Timmy. So yeah, Interesting. I would love to see it. I'm still going to see it for sure. Also mid nineties and a 24 film is at the state theater. Definitely want to see that. And apparently Bohemian Rhapsody, a biopic about queen is coming mm-hmm. out um, November yep. 2nd. Which I'll also see that. Yeah, very cool. In more political leaning news, Travis Scott spoke at a rally for Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke. Uh, he is running against Ted Cruz in the Texas Senate race, and he kind of shot up in in popularity when there was a video of him on Twitter speaking about how big of a deal uh, mass incarceration and just the issue and and the unfortunate like disenfranchisement of black Americans has been and that got him a lot of political attention and he seems to be a really promising candidate so uh, it's pretty cool to see Travis Scott among other stars there at his rally to support. Yeah I've definitely seen I mean it speaks to the state of politics and social media in this country but I've seen so many videos of him shared on multiple social media platforms and he's such an influential speaker and it would be a huge deal if he beat Ted Cruz. Yeah. With that being said, vote. (laughs) Everyone should vote Mm -hmm. uh, next week. So once you get off the spooky season high, (laughs) do your civic duty. All right. So to get the ball rolling on this spooky edition of Arts Interrupted, I'm going to tell you guys a little spooky story. So disclaimer, this is a secondhand story but it's still just as scary. We'll accept her. Good. So my friend. (laughs) Who? My friend, Sean. (laughs) Different Sean, not the producer. He owns this antique pinball machine. Hmm. And it's one of those throwback vintage ones where you have to manually pull the lever back and shoot the pinball. And then it bounces around and like makes a noise, and uh, it has a, a bunch version? of it has a bunch of backlights on the thing, and you plug it in and it makes noise and it's fun, you know, all that stuff, pinball. <laughs> so he had this pinball machine in a room that was being remodeled. So his family moved the pinball machine into this like throwaway storage attic area and he described this attic area as the place that you put stuff that you're never going to see again and you even lock the door to it like after you go there just because that's like what was customary i guess and one weekend his parents were out of the country uh, i think for the like anniversary or something so he's home alone and he's sitting in the living room and then he hears the manual pullback of the pinball machine shut the fuck up and then he hears <laughs> he hears the pinball get shot and bounce around and he hears the lights of the pinball machine here's like the ping ping noises yeah, yeah. The, the, sh- the pullback shoot ding 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 multiple times like three pullbacks of the lever yeah full game (laughs) full game of pinball 
They're not funny. While he's home alone. Is he like a high school kid? Is this from you're in high school? Uh, I think he said it was like late middle school, mm. early high school. Mm. Yeah, in this locked attic. And he, when they stored the pinball machine, they didn't plug it in. Like there was no power to it. And you need to turn it on for the lights and the sounds to work. And he heard a full game of pinball from his attic. Did he investigate? No. He went to his, <laughs> he left and went to his grandma's house. Didn't he? <laughs> he, oh, he left and went to his grandma's house? Yeah. So he was scared? Oh, yeah, definitely. Whoa. That's insane. Isn't that so scary? And look, this is like a guy you trust who would just like make up some. No, yeah, definitely. Whoa. That's insane. Okay, we have with us here Dr. Aaron Weidman. Welcome. Hey, Mike. (laughs) So we brought you on the show because we're talking about spooky stuff. Tis the season. And if you wouldn't mind, could you give us like a little background of your study in psychology and things like that? Because we want to kind of take a scientific approach to, to fear, and we thought you'd be a good outlet for that. Yeah, I'm a postdoctoral research fellow in the psychology department. So I did my PhD in Canada, and I've been working here for a year. I do experiments and survey research on emotions, including fear. So I'll do my best to keep it scientific. (laughs) Great, great. So I guess it makes sense to start as general as possible. What is fear? Like when when we feel fear and we are afraid, what is happening internally? So when I've talked about this in classes, uh, I like to draw the analogy between emotions like fear and an ear or a nose uh, or any other part of our human self that helps us do something. Noses help us smell and ears help us hear. And emotions like fear in the same way, we have them regularly because they perform a specific adaptive purpose for us in daily life. And in the case of fear, that is that fear helps us avoid threats at the broadest level. Mm-hmm. So a classic example is if you, if you see a bear or a snake, a threatening animal, you might, have, you might show fear and you might have a response, including physiological sensations and subjective feelings and, and the expression in your face that is consistent with the emotion of fear. And as you can imagine, that kind of uh, is also associated with the desire to, to flee and remove yourself from the dangerous situation. So in that way, fear helps us uh, avoid threats. And uh, it's interesting that humans, as we often do, have kind of capitalized on this natural tendency that we have. And we've almost made this, this cultural phenomenon out of it where we, we intentionally induce this psychological response for some other purpose other than like saving ourselves um whether you go to a haunted house or you watch a scary movie you you have the expectation that you're going to be dealt with this psychological issue um but that's that's part of the fun so do you maybe want to talk about how this happened and why why we do this yeah well one thing i'll pick up on that you said there is when we go to a haunted house we had the expectation that we at some point during that experience will 
feel and, 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 and undergo a sensation similar or equivalent to that of fear. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we have that expectation is a critical difference. Because again, think about the examples of fear that I just talked about. You see a snake, you see a bear in the woods. That's not expected. In fact, the very unexpectedness of it is perhaps what makes it so scary Mm. and provokes fear in the first place. So in that way, going to a haunted house, watching a scary movie, certainly we've all been there when something jumps out at you at a haunted house, when there's a suspenseful scene in a scary movie, maybe a, an axe murderer is about to jump out and, and, and attack someone, maybe we get uh, some physiological sensations, like maybe we sweat a little bit out of fear. Maybe, we, maybe if you filmed us at that time, we would show fear. Uh, and maybe subjectively, that feels somewhat similar. But in both of those situations, the relevant to Halloween, we have the expectation that this is going to happen. And we also have the knowledge that we are, in fact, safe. So that is a key difference, I think. When you're in the woods with a bear, you may not know that you're safe. When you're in a haunted house and something's going to jump out at you, you know that it is essentially an, an, a temporary entertainment it's going to end and you're not actually going to die. <laughs> and so I think that's a big difference between uh, fear as, as humans have experienced it for centuries and how it naturally comes about and fear as we've the experiences that we seek out during the Halloween season. Right. I think that's another interesting thing that you mentioned, the fact that we, when we put ourselves in these situations, know pretty much for certain that nothing actually bad is going to happen to us yet we are still subjected to these feelings. So it, is there, is there a, a separation between like reason and, and reality in these situations? I don't know if you can speak on that, but like when, when we're watching a scary movie, we still feel these real emotions, and even after the movie's over, we might think that something's around the corner or something like that, um, even though the, the, the images in the movie are not real. And therefore, the fear that it's inducing and, and, and the worry that something might be around the corner is also not really real. So where is that connection? Yeah, well, I think when we know, for instance, during a scary movie or a haunted house, when we know that we're not actually in danger, in a way, we free ourselves to enjoy the experience, some of the aspects of the scary experience that that can in fact be enjoyable. So one of those is the thrill and arousal that comes with being afraid. You can think of other examples too. We ride roller coasters, which at some level, being hundreds of feet up in the air, peering over the first drop, is very scary. And potentially, if we didn't know that we were strapped in and safe, it could be very dangerous to us. But we, but we do know that we're safe. And so the adrenaline rush that we get from the, the first drop of roller coaster, or in the case of you know, the Halloween examples, the, the adrenaline rush that we get during the, the, the peak scene of a scary movie, or the exciting feeling of anticipation of, of wondering 
when the surprise is going to come in the haunted house. When is something going to jump out? That's very suspenseful, and that suspense can be a thrill that people seek again in the same way that people might ride roller coasters. So I think that speaks to the separation you're talking about. We we know that we're safe, and so we, we are then able to enjoy the thrilling aspects of fearful situations. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So is there, this, this might be applied more generally to psychology and emotions, but is there like a genetic predisposition or a genetic, like, I guess just a gene that might make people more likely to be scared? Do, do you study that with emotions? Is a person's capacity for a certain emotion like tied to genetics? Tied to genetics, yes. There's certainly no, no good evidence that there's a you know, a one-to-one gene-to-emotion relationship with, with fear or any other mm-hmm. emotion. But certainly, for instance, people's personality tendency to seek thrills, to, to pursue those types of activities, likely has a genetic component, as do many behavioral tendencies that you might see in people. But the idea of a, of a fear gene, for instance, that's more... That's more pop science than, than grounded <laughs> in, in empirical research. Interesting. So that might explain why your one friend loves scary movies when you can't watch them. Yeah, well, absolutely. There's still, even if there's not a fear gene per se, there's definitely uh, still individual differences in the extent to which people seek out thrills or avoid thrills. Some people are just less risk taking less or, or you know more risk averse and, and risk obvi- often being associated with thrilling uh, unexpected situations and in the same way the the tendency to feel fear or any other emotion there's there's going to be individual differences in that even if it's not linked to one gene per se so this is more of a personal question but do you having a background in psychology and obviously being very well versed in emotion does this affect how you like emote and feel emotions like if you're in a haunted house are you if you see like a clown jump in your face are you neutralizing that that threat or are you still subject to those natural things even though you're aware of like their sources i'm still subject to the same reaction that that you (laughs) or anyone else would be and i think that actually speaks to another typical finding in emotion science and psychology, and that is emotions and, and you know, expression, expressions and physiological changes and feelings that go along with emotions, they can be activated relatively quickly. And even before we have a full conscious grasp of what's going on to us. And if you think about it, that's really useful. So again, to go back to the canonical example with fear of if you see a bear in the woods or if a snake jumps out at you or or you could think of any number of other immediate dangers it's really beneficial as people as a species if we can detect those things quickly and efficiently rather than imagine the alternative a snake approaches and we sit we sit there and wonder hmm well what is this thing approaching me how might I want to respond? <laughs> that would be a much uh, slower, less efficient, and perhaps uh, more fatal way to respond than quick fear response that gets us out of there, that helps get us out of right, there. Right, right. 
So, so to answer your question, I'm j just as likely to, to cower when a clown jumps at me as anyone <laughs> else. And that's partly because to some extent, our emotion, our emotional reactions, our immediate emotional reactions are quick yeah. and somewhat automatic. Cool. All right. Well, there you have it, everybody. Studying psychology will not make you fearless when you hit that haunted house this weekend. Uh, thank you, Dr. Aaron Weidman, for your time. Thanks, Mike. You just heard from Dr. Aaron Weidman, a postdoc research fellow at the university, who gave us a more technical look into the psychological systems behind and usages of fear. We wanted to get a more well-rounded look at fear and horror, so we spoke with Gina Brandolino, a lecturer in the Department of English and the Sweetland Center for Writing. She teaches two very popular and very spooky English classes about horror. Unfortunately, we had some technical mishaps recording this interview, so the audio quality is a bit spooky in itself, but please bear with us because Gina says some extremely interesting things about horror as a genre and even offers us a frightening anecdote from her childhood, which informed her connection to fear and horror. I kicked off the interview by asking her a little bit about why she thinks people seek out opportunities to feel scared, like going to see a scary movie or reading a scary novel. Well, it's a good question because generally speaking, we don't think, oh, let's spend two hours in the dark being completely terrified. What a great idea. You know, that's <laughs> not really, you know, if you put it like that, it's not everybody, everybody's idea. Yeah. But I feel like part of what appeals about horror is that it's a communal experience. And it's, it's an experience that is fun to have with other people. And so you go to a movie, and even if you don't know the 20 people sitting around you, you all get scared at the time. At the same time. You all gasp at the same time. You're all relieved at the same time. And that communal experience of uh, being afraid together um, sort of builds on each other's reactions and makes the experience more pleasurable. So that, I mean, I guess that's more of an answer about why we uh, enjoy going to horror movies together mm -hmm. instead of just watching them alone um, in, in our rooms. But I think the other thing that's really um, satisfying about horror is that it provides opportunities for us to try out solutions in our minds to really sort of impossible looking problems when those problems um, confront characters in um, the horror stories that we're watching or reading. And I remember uh, listening to an interview once that talked about how the human brain, and particularly the human brain uh, of women, is really good at imagining catastrophe, imagining disaster, and then using that imagination to steer around possible problems. This this was a maternal instinct that was embedded in uh, female humans early on. But I think it's part of what happens with horror too is that. Horror allows us to participate in the imagination of terrible, terrible situations mm -hmm. and figure a way around them, um, figure figure a way out of them. And I'm remembering um, just, boy, was it in August um, at a Comic-Con um, in San Diego, there was a panel with Laurie Strode, um, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, who plays Laurie Strode in Halloween where a man in the audience got up and said, this isn't really a question for Jamie Lee Curtis, but it is a, a comment for her. I have to tell you that I had uh, an invader in my home, and I didn't know what to do, and I was terrified, and I just thought, what would Laurie Strode do? And that's why I'm alive. That's what horror is good for, oh right? Oh my 
God, yeah. I mean, that's crazy because I feel like when I think about horror, I think about, in my attraction to it, I think about seeking out like visceral reactions. And even it is, I don't want to do that alone. You want to be in a communal setting and sort of push your emotional boundaries in this weird, <laughs> self-inflicted way with a group of people and sort of experience it together. But I never thought of the kind of logistical benefits. It's like a, it's like a little mind game Absolutely. where you are trying to solve a high stakes situation. Yeah. Um, intense plot spoiling. So that's yes. Really cool. <laughs> yes. Um, and so you teach an English horror class, and so I'm interested in what comes to your mind when you think of great horror texts. And this can be obviously anything from Frankenstein to something more modern and social commentary like Get Out. Yeah, well, I mean, I love Get Out. Yeah. Um, uh, and I love Hereditary, um, mm -hmm. and maybe I'll, I'll have a chance to talk about that later. But mm -hmm. thinking about this, uh, this question uh, right now, just in terms of practical, what can people turn to if they're listening to this podcast? I'm going to recommend something that's really easy to find on the internet. It is a creepypasta, which is the special variety of horror that is uh, sort of posted online and reposted and reposted again. And if you just type in the word creepypasta <laughs> and then pen pal, you'll be taken to a story um, called um, Pen Pal, which is, a, um, is written as a first-person narrative but is probably not autobiographical, about a little boy who has a very long, sort of decades-long uh, uh, situation with a stalker. Uh, that is, hands down, the scariest thing that you can read on the internet. And I, I teach it every time I wow. do my horror class, and every time horror st uh, my students are like, I'm never going to be the same. So, pen pal, that's one thing yeah. I would recommend. Um, I also want to recommend, so if, if you're in Ann Arbor, and I bet you are if you're listening to this podcast, you know about the excellent, excellent uh, comic book store on Main Street called Vaults of Midnight. Right now, they're their comic book of the month is a book called Infidel. Mm -hmm. And Infidel is a, is a, it builds itself as an updated haunted house story for the 21st century, and it is. It's about a building in uh, New York City that is haunted by a series of racist ghosts, and ghosts that are particularly racist mm -hmm. against um, Muslim people. And the story, um, we just read the story actually in, in my horror class, and my students loved the story. The, the ghosts um, in the comic are, are visually very frightening. Um, and the story is timely in the same way that Get Out is timely. It, you know, it, it tells us something about ourselves, as all horror does. One more, uh, just to throw back, if you have not seen the 1980s version of Poltergeist, everybody should see it. That's the one that had the little blonde girl in it called Carol Ann, and the medium who famously says, this house is Gina went on to describe what those who study horror identify as the two crucial aspects of it, the first being fear and the second being loathing. Fear being something in the text that the viewer or reader identifies as problematic and dangerous, but then loathing being that visceral feeling of dread or that physical shudder that can come over you when watching something or reading something scary. If you don't have that, then you kind of just have like a really good episode of Law and Order, mm -hmm. you know, or a Grisham novel. <laughs> so you've got to have both. And I feel like um, the the jump scare that we get in movies is sometimes associated with with that that shudder, you know, mm -hmm. that that uh, loathing. Um, but more often, it's not what endures. The jump scare isn't that right. stays with us. Yeah, because that is, I guess, in terms of just the visceral more senses being appealed to. Like if a loud noise happens, you've yep. got to be scared. Um, yep. Yeah, so totally. Um, I mean, I recently saw Hereditary, 
which everybody should see. Yeah. Um, and there's, without giving very much away, there's just like beheading after beheading after beheading in that movie. And this is, I'm not oh. giving anything away saying that. Yeah. That's not what stays with you. After, and I watch a lot of horror, after mm -hmm. I saw that, I didn't want to get out of my car in my parking, uh, in, in my parking area at home because I didn't want, um, I, I, I couldn't get the sort of the larger feeling of dread. It wasn't like I thought I was going to encounter one of the beheaded people. Yeah. I just, the, the larger, movie had been pressing on me and make me, making me just feel generally freaked out. Was that more of a focus? Yes. Because, yeah, I, I feel like I'm always looking for a bit more of a psychological horror, where even something like, have you ever seen House at the End of the Street? Mm -hmm. Not Last House on the Left, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, nobody, but Last House on the Left is like the scariest thing out there. Yeah. Yeah. But just something that, you know, you just can't even grapple with this concept, just like, like, get out, like, how is this even... How did this come into somebody's brain, and how is this even being articulated, and somehow having some semblance of like fucked up truth mm -hmm. in it? Um, and I feel like that is often what lingers with you, and I, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I went on to ask her her thoughts on different types of fear-inducing media. For example, comparing something like the quintessential monster story that is Frankenstein to a movie like Get Out that is most frightening in the, the poignancy of its social commentary? Well, it's interesting that you name those two next to each other because, and I've been saying this, I've been, uh, I just gave a talk about Frankenstein mm -hmm. um, in the town of Howell. Mm -hmm. And so um, anybody who, who was there um, heard me, and, I, and I'm not sure how many people who are listening were in Howell that day, but um, heard me say that Frankenstein um, the, the book Frankenstein did uh, offered something new to the world, mm -hmm. um, and that is non-supernatural horror. Like you look at Frankenstein and you're like, this is definitely supernatural horror. This guy makes a monster out of corpse parts, and yeah, that's true. But it's not the same kind of supernatural horror as like a ghost story or a story yeah. of demonic possession. It's what we now recognize as a mad scientist story, mm -hmm. right? Like. Frankenstein was the very first mad scientist, and Mary Shelley conceived of that novel, she says in the preface, as, as being of not impossible occurrence. So it was something that in her in her brain was like, okay, maybe not like it's going to happen tomorrow, but it might happen. Get Out is also a mad mm -hmm. scientist story. Get Out is a story about uh, a surgeon who thinks that, well, maybe I shouldn't say, I won't, I won't, um, I won't do any spoilers for somebody who hasn't seen it. But it's basically mad scientist meets racist. Mm. And that's a modern twist on the mad scientist story that Frankenstein created. And it has everything to do with that fear element, right? Yeah. Um, and loathing comes in with the science, right? Yeah. With seeing what happens with bodies. Oliver talk about Gina's academic devotion to horror made me wonder about her personal relationship to the genre and fear more broadly. So I asked her. So I have like a really, like a muscle memory of being afraid that attached me to the genre of horror and it goes back to when I was 10 years old. I'm from a town outside of Chicago called Joliet mm -hmm. um, and Joliet is, is famous if it is famous at all for the Blues Brothers um, but also um, for the federal uh, prison that we have there called Statesville. Um, and Statesville is a place where they, where they send serial killers to live in, until they are um, executed. And so I grew up uh, with the lore of serial killers all around me um, and, and knowing their names and knowing why they were in prison and, and you know, being mindful, the prison is in this place, don't pick up hitchhikers, I would always see the sign, don't pick up hitchhikers, is John Wayne Gacy going to get in my mom's car? 
Um, so, no. So there was this one summer when I was 10 years old, which would have been 1982, and um, there was a serial killer who wasn't in the prison, uh, but who was out and sort of running around my area. And they called him the weekend killer because he only killed on weekends. And it was a weekend and he had been killing and um, I knew he was out there and I knew what a serial killer was and, and it terrified me. And by sheer coincidence, um, somebody thought it was a good idea to put the exorcist on like network television that weekend and i was 10 years old and i like turned on cbs this wasn't even and the exorcist was on i, I, I think it was late summer yeah. I, I can't exactly remember and um maybe august i'd say and it was uh, part of the exorcist where um reagan uh the character who is possessed is is being particularly unmanageable in her bed and the devil is is really pushing her around and it really scared the hell out of me and combo and somewhere in my yeah that that scene scared the hell out of me but somewhere in my brain those two things got fused together and i remember my mom took me and my sister and uh my cousins who were over out for ice cream and it was dusk and you could see dusk falling and i could i just looked around um at the trees around and thought yeah this is just not good yeah. but also like something in that experience touched my heart like something about that was meaningful to me and i'm not exactly a religious person mm -hmm. but I think part of what it is is that horror offers ways of believing in something that exists beyond mm -hmm. the physical form that we have here serial killers you know that's that's one thing but a devil implies you know an existence beyond this body you know that that there's something out there that isn't embodied and mm -hmm. that is that appeals to me as a non-religious person to have a way of believing yeah In the peak of Halloween season, we're certainly thinking about the role of spook in our lives. And especially after hearing from both Gina and Aaron, it goes without saying that horror takes on varying levels of significance for each of us. You might turn on a scary movie to fill a Saturday night with some friends, or your experience of fear could border on spiritual. Either way, there's no denying that the feeling of fear stirs something primal within us, whether we like it or not. tuning in to this week's spooky episode of Arts Interrupted. Thanks to Gina Brandolino for giving us that sweet, sweet horror as a genre knowledge. And to Aaron Weidman for giving us a more psychological perspective. The episode is hosted by Avery Friedman and Mike Watkins. And our theme music has been graciously provided by Brad Gerwin. Our producers are me, Olive Scott. And me, Sean Lang. Along with our junior producers, John Faby Baby Fabian and Libby McKenzie. That's all for this week. Stay, Stay spooky. spooky. Stay spooky. Stay, 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 stay.